Happy New Year. <laughs> Today is actually the, the, the liturgical church calendar New Year. The first day of Advent is the first day of the year uh, for, for the cycle that starts at Advent. Um, and uh, traditionally, this, this Sunday is you know the, the start of our anticipation of the birth of Christ, but it also is the end of the year, so it celebrates the second coming. Uh, of Christ. So Christ comes in a number of different ways. Uh, I thought to mark the event, I would um, read, start with a prayer from uh, the Book of Common Prayer. This is the, prayer, the collect for the first Sunday of Advent, so pray with me. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. We're going to talk about the Trinity today. Um, so, simple. Should be... Should we, get, we should get this buttoned up before the end of the hour. Um, I have I've ta actually taught a lot more on this than I have on any of the other topics, so I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but I, I really enjoy teaching on the Trinity, and I will try my best to make it... Uh, comprehensible as much as it can be. Uh, part of the point, I think, is that it's not. But um, if, if you have questions or anything along the way, feel free to stop me and ask me. Um, we'll, we'll try to go slow. And we're not, uh, in all sincerity, we're not going to cover it all. We never will uh, in an hour. We never would in a year or a lifetime. Um, so with that said, let's, let's uh, jump in. Uh, the first thing is that the, the Trinity is a little bit different in terms of apologetics because, uh, first of all, it, it's, it's a doctrine for the church. Uh, I, I mean, it's true for everybody, but it's one of the few things that we believe that there's no possible way we could have reasoned to it. You know, when we talk about the existence of God, uh, that's been revealed to us in Scripture, but it's also something our minds kind of naturally can come to that conclusion, uh, you know, without the aid of sort of special divine grace or revelation. Um, but the Trinity is, you, you don't just figure that out. Um, so I'm not going to try to prove to you today that the Trinity is perfectly rational or that any reasonable-minded unbeliever could or should come to believe it. Uh, that's, that's not what the Trinity is for, that's not what it's about, uh, and that's not how we, sh we should think about it. Um, as I put on uh, letter A under Roman numeral one on your outlines, uh, it's, it's always going to be a scandal to unbelieving minds, and that's because it's based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He became fully human, the one true God of Israel, uh, Yahweh, walked on earth as a living, breathing human being. And that 
sort of blows up everything we know about what it means to be God and what it means to be human and the difference between those two. Um, so it's always going to be a little bit of um, a marketing disaster, uh, the Trinity is, because it's not something you can make easy. We still believe we worship one God. We don't worship three gods. Um, and you can't just s simplify that for an unbeliever to say, well, re really, it's just, it's just three gods, you know, or it's just, it's just one God, sim sim simple. Um, you're always going to have to explain it. You're always going to have to say this is, this is a, an article of faith that we adhere to, even though we don't fully understand it. And I think there are good reasons for not fully understanding it. We'll get into what, what mystery is and how it works in terms of who God is in a little bit. But I just want to say that at the out, 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 um, outset as well, that it needs to remain a scandal. If you, if you, try, to, if you try to kind of smooth over it, um, you'll have done violence to the concepts and the idea of who God is. And um, we're not allowed to do that as Christians. Okay, um, one of the standard long-term uh, criticisms of of the Trinity it comes from Islam, uh, which uh, originated in a polytheistic environment, just like Christianity actually. But uh, in the sixth, seventh century, uh, when the Prophet Muhammad lived. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, that was a polytheistic, tribalistic environment, and um, Islam came in as a monotheistic tonic to that sort of culture, and uh, their biggest criticism was uh, of the surrounding culture was its was its idolatry, sort of in the old kind of playing out the Old Testament in its in a, an analogous way, um, so. The complexity of the Trinity, in comparison to their simplest, simple doctrine of monotheism, was a threat. And so they've always accused Christians of worshiping three gods. Well, you say you worship the Trinity, you just worship three gods. Uh, and um, a lot of uh, Christian apologetics um, in, in the face of Islam is uh, forced to defend itself against that accusation, that we worship three gods. No, we worship one god in three persons. Um, and uh, then you got you got to explain from there, which I'll try to give you some sort of, I don't know if ammo is the right word, but I'll, I'll give you some arguments and um, so that we can counter that uh, accusation. A more, um, I don't know if it's familiar, but the, in the West, uh, the, the criticisms that I'll, I'll put up on here, um, are that uh, mostly that the Trinity is some sort of post-biblical, post-New Testament, post-apostolic development. Um, and development is conceived of as, as a bad word. It's, there's, a, there's a sort of purity to New Testament teaching and doctrine, and that the Trinity is somehow a corruption of that, an addition to that. The word Trinity doesn't show up in the New Testament. Um, so, and, and this, this comes from both within and outside the church. Uh, the, uh, 
in the 19th century, especially a lot of Enlightenment scholarship uh, made that claim that, well, the Trinity is not actually in the New Testament. That's something that happened later. And I, I, will, I will get into sort of responding to each of these as, as after I, I talk about them all, but I want to get, get through them all because these are all very interrelated. Um, so uh, on the one hand, you get, you get this accusation sort of from Protestant liberalism on, the, on that side of the spectrum, um, or, or just skeptical non-believers who say, well, you, you claim to, you claim to um, believe in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't actually teach the Trinity. That, that word isn't in there, uh, that concept isn't in there. Uh, it came about afterward. Um, why did it come about? Well, as a result of one line of reasoning goes, the Catholicization of the church. Um, once the church had power and was all over the Mediterranean world in the first four centuries, there were priests, there were bishops, they started coming up with doctrines to sort of reinforce their position of power as, as a church. Um, also, uh, that it arose as a result of the fusion of state power with, um, with the church's power. So it's not a coincidence that at the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325, this is where they first defined the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, in the, if you've heard of the Nicene Creed, which they, they'll say at any Catholic church on a Sunday morning, any Episcopal church, and a lot of other uh, more liturgically oriented churches, they will say the Nicene Creed. This is where it came from. Uh, the year 325, that's the fourth century. Um, and the emperor was at this council. The emperor Constantine had converted to Christianity. He had made it legal. And he was interested in uh, maintaining peace and harmony within the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And these bishops were arguing about what the Trinity was. And so he had a stake in making sure that this conflict was resolved because these kind of parties were aligning and um, he was afraid that conflict was going to happen. So uh, he, he was actually the one who called the council. Uh, he said, we need to get together and resolve this. And so critics take that idea and say, well, this was really about the emperor Constantine consolidating his power within the Roman Empire. Uh, it had been sort of declining for centuries, and he was trying to shore it up and revitalize it, and so it really didn't have anything to do with um, actual doctrine or what people believed. And a lot of 19th century scholars made this very popular for a very long time, this theory. Um, and as with all of these, there's an element of truth to it. He, he really did. Uh, most of it is um, bias and fabrication, but um, uh, everything I've told you is, is true. Uh, and the last one is that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a result of um, uh, the corruption of sort of pure, biblical, Jewish, uh, and what I've called, said Hebraic kind of thought. Uh, it's been corrupted with Greek and, and uh, what I say, Hellenistic, which just means Greek, um, but these are words you might come across, uh, Greek or Hellenistic or philosophical or non-biblical categories. So... Um, all, all of the words that they use at the Nicene Creed, um, especially the central one, um, which means that the Father and the Son are of the same substance, uh, that Greek word is not in Scripture. 
to, to describe the relationship between the father and the son. It's called, it's, the Greek word is homoousios. Ousios uh, means substance, homo means the same. Put them together, you got the father and the son are of the same substance. They're both fully God. Uh, and the criticism is that's not in, that's, that's, a, that's a platonic, Hellenistic Greek word. It's not in scripture. Um, so the, they've, they've sort of traded the ideas of scripture for these Greek philosophical ideas that don't have anything to do with, with the New Testament. These Jews who were for the Messiah, I'm trying to see how throughout your printing was looked at by them. Who do they think the Messiah will be? Do they believe that will be Yahweh or Yahweh's son or the angel of God? Who are they looking for to use this extension of Yahweh to describe the Messiah? Yeah, it, um, the question is. Who do who do who do Jews believe the Messiah will be, or who did they believe at that time? And there was a, there was I mean there were just actually today and as then there are many different kind of ideas. Um, the the Christian kind of understanding of that the that the Messiah would be Yahweh in the flesh, the incarnation. That idea was not totally new, but the sort of Christian reinterpretation of the Old Testament in terms of Christ, the God-man, um, it was sort of new. It, it would have been pretty much new at the time. Um, okay, to a Jew today, uh, if they would look at the Trinity, you know, what I'm, I'm trying to understand is they would, an Orthodox Jew was of course rejected outright, but the concept wouldn't be completely foreign to some of them. Um, no, I don't think so. Especially like the Old Testament scriptures of the angel of the Lord did this, or the spirit of the Lord went forth. And that those were sort of so prefigurations. So, so are they more open to understanding the Trinity than Muslims or accepting it? It's possible, and it it should be, I think, because uh, because if our if our faith is robustly informed by the Old Testament as it should be, you know, the the Messiah, the Son of God, who we talk about as the second person of the Trinity, is the Messiah of Israel, the the fulfillment of the hopes of the people of God in the Old Testament. So um, there should be a sense of continuity there, and. Uh, I don't think it's inappropriate to, when making those, when having sort of maybe an apologetic discussion along those lines, to make those connections. Um, and you know, the groups like Jews for Jesus do that. Um, but you and I've I've been to maybe some like uh, seder suppers where they sort of incorporate Trinitarian thought into the seder liturgy um, to make it Christian. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, and you know, some first century Jews did, because you know, the Jewish writers in the New Testament use Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant to 
uh, make the case that Jesus is the Christ. He's the, he's the, he's the one pointed to. I'm going to speak to here, but she was listening to the radio, and uh, she told me that there was a, a rabbi who converted to the Jesus Christ, and he was holding his school. Yeah, Christians sort of made that more important to their theology than Jews at the time did. Um, that those those suffering servant songs uh, in Isaiah fifty three and elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when Jesus is already raised from the dead, his disciples are still saying, "Okay, now Jesus, you're going to set up your kingdom. Now is it going to happen?" So they still don't get it. They still think it's sort of a political category that he's instituting and not not something more transcendent. Yeah. How would they, wouldn't they have understood Isaiah 9, 6, uh, and, you know, that wonderful counselor, mighty God, and, and that's clearly a messy, wasn't that to them a messianic yeah. passage? And it says wonderful God, and, you know, the. Yeah. how could they ha- not have had an idea that he would be fully God? Well... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at Paul as a test case, because we, we think of Paul as a Christian, you know, uh, but, and we think of him converting from um, sort of first century Judaism to Christianity um, when it, there's sort of a, if you've read, um, I read a lot in seminary, read a lot of N.T. Wright, he's a very popular New Testament scholar, um, the way he talks about Paul uh, and it's sort of the, his school of thought talks about Paul as seeing Christ not as um, sort of the end of Judaism, but as, as its fulfillment, as uh, the, with, with Christ as the Messiah, uh, he, didn't, he didn't cease to become a Jew. He, seemed, he, he saw himself as becoming more Jewish, you know, uh, more fully uh, embodying in his own hopes the, the the hopes of the people of Israel and what what they were looking for that that's what to, so to say that um, Christ is the Messiah is to say that he is the Son of God that he's the second person of the Trinity those those two are not you're not saying two different things there um, so you know and Paul was disappointed in his evangelizing of the Jewish people um, because they didn't see See that the way he did, so they, they rejected it. And um, Christ said, Christ Himself said, He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know, exactly, exactly, and you can see that in, in coming up, working itself out in Paul's theology. What do they do with Genesis one, where it says that God said, "Let us make mankind our." Yeah, that's that uh, interpretation of that is all over the place, and some people see it as you know a prefiguration of the Trinity. You know, the the persons of the Trinity. Um, a lot of people see it as uh, Jews would probably read it as sort of a divine plural, like or uh, royal, a royal plural. Like uh, sometimes when you get um, royalty talking about something they're going to do, they talk about themselves in the second person. Isn't the, the 
Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it means gods and sometimes it's used to mean God. So, um, yeah, that I, I, the way, uh, J.I. Packer puts it is that the, the, the Trinity is there in solution in the New Testament, even though they don't use the words, um, and that, but it's all the ideas are there, are there for the taking sort of, uh, and they, they kind of need to be put in, in the right order. And that's what they did. Um, so getting back to, you know, sort of all these um, <clears throat> criticisms about how it rose up beforehand, I, I, I think you see, and I, I, I would like us to see that um, even if it's, you know, Greek, Greek philosophical ideas, they're using it to interpret, interpret scripture in the best way they can. Um, the, these people, it's no longer a Jewish religion by the fourth century, right? In the first century in the New Testament, it's mostly Jews worshiping Christ uh, as God. By the fourth century, it's uh, Gentiles all over the Mediterranean, some Jews still, but not nearly as many proportionally. Uh, and they're using the sort of philosophical ideas to put, put these pieces together or to um, distill sort of the, the doctrine of the Trinity from the New Testament. Okay, um, I want to step back. Uh, the, the next couple of things I want to do are, um, we'll get into the actual doctrine at the end, but I think one of the most important things for thinking your way through the Trinity uh, is to, um, what I have s somewhat cheekily in the past called thinking about thinking about the Trinity. We need to step back and we need to approach it from the right perspective and with the right sort of presuppositions in mind. And I want to use a couple of ideas to sort of maybe retool our, our, the way, way we're approaching it a little. So that, not so that we can understand it better, so, but so that we can enter into that mystery in a more productive and fruitful way for our spiritual lives. Okay, um, so this is Roman numeral two, two ways of thinking about the Trinity. And if you've been uh, in my Sunday school class before, or you have um, sat through Grace Foundations with me, you've probably heard this little, what I call thought experiment. Um, but you, you kind of got to um, walk with me for a little bit. So I, I want to talk about... Um, an imaginary world. It's sort of like a science fiction novel. So think about who, okay, who's read A Wrinkle in Time? Somebody read? Good number of people. So the main character in that book goes to a planet that's completely two-dimensional. Do you remember this? And she's trying to fit into this world and it's, it's, it's flat and she, like, she gets crushed and she has to leave right away. Um, so imagine a world that, that's two-dimensional. That means there's, you know, there's length and there's width, but there's not depth. You with me? And Okay, imagine like what the beings in this world would look like or be like. They would be shapes, like squares and circles. So, yeah, got a very complex image of a square and a circle, okay? Um, th these are what, and I didn't make this up. This is somebody else's analogy, um, but... These are called flatlanders, and they only know two dimensions, right? So suppose somebody comes to these uh, these flatlanders. They are they are they are squares and circles and triangles, and says, "I know 
of a being who is both a square and a circle at the same time. These flatlanders would say, that is clearly illogical. That is clearly impossible. You can't have a shape. You can't have a being who is both a square and a circle at the same time. It's impossible. There's, there's no way you can do it. There are certain irrefutable logical laws that govern our world, and one of them is that a thing can't be a square and a circle at the same time. It can't have four straight edges and also have an infinite number of points the same distance away from the cent one center, one point, okay? They said, we understand that, we understand that. They don't go together. So it would look something weird, like you'd have it, oh, you can't really see it on there, sorry, but I've just got a square kind of superimposed on a circle there. It doesn't work, so. It's not showing up either, it's weird. Oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm one behind here. There we go. So, okay, yeah. Got the square superimposed on the circle. They say, no can do. But this person says, oh, no, 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 I've been to another world, and there is a being, but it's not, he's not perfectly a square, and he's not perfectly a circle, but he incorporates aspects of both into his being. What is this shape? Can't really see it, but it's a cylinder, right? If you look at a cylinder from the side, it's a square. If you look at it from the top, it's a circle. Now, that's not a picture of the Trinity, but that is a picture of what mystery is. That's what a picture of, of looking at the infinity of God is for us finite beings. We are limited in mind and in shape and in space and in time. We don't understand what it's like to be unbounded in all those ways. Even the word infinite is a negative. It means not finite because we don't have a category for it. We can only think of it negatively. That's what this person who visits the Flatlander place would have to be. He's from a three-dimensional world. He knows these shapes. They make sense. But to the Flatlander, to us, it doesn't make sense. That's what it's like to think about God as three in one. It's not illogical. It's just that we can't, under we can't understand because of our limitations. Not because of sin, but just because of who we are, right? So this is, this is what it means to say that God is mystery or mysterious or that certain doctrines are mysterious. Not that it's a problem to be solved or it's a puzzle that we don't know how to put together. It means God is beyond what we can know. So when Paul says in the New Testament, um, this mystery has been revealed to you, he's using that word in a way to not to say this mystery has been totally put together and made made apparent to you. It means it's something that you had to be told because you wouldn't have ever gotten it. The Flatlander would not ever conceive in his own mind of a cylinder, right? Because it, it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work for their world. It seems illogical. And if you do if, if he does conceive of it, it's gonna be really wacky. Okay? So that's the first thought experiment. You, this is how we need to approach the Trinity. This is how we need to approach God, who he is. Not as a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be sort of entered into in faith. Okay, that's, that's the first thing uh, about way, ways to approach the Trinity. And um, this isn't just an intellectual thing. This is a way of life. 
You know, you, you enter into the presence of God in prayer, knowing that he is always beyond, always more, always deeper, always further, always richer than you can ever imagine. So it's sort of a way of life. The second part is I, I want to sort of do a little bit of a, a catechism with you um, that sh- shows sort of not proving from Scripture that, that, uh, that God is Trinitarian, that God is three persons, uh, but that he, uh, when we bow before Jesus as our Savior, that the Trinity becomes inevitable. The Trinity is the best explanation we have of our salvation. Okay? So if, if, you, if you want to uh, just shout out answers to your questions or, you know, raise your hand if it's a yes or no question or whatever, we'll, see, we'll go, we'll just... What was that last thing you said, that Jesus is the best explanation? Just the, the best explanation of the fact that we have been saved by him. That's not maybe the way I said it, but uh, he's, the, when, when, you, when you, I think what I said was when you bow before... Jesus as your Savior, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes inevitable. <laughs> okay, here, so walk with me a little bit again. And then the Spirit being with us after Christ leaves, him saying, unless I leave, the Spirit can't continue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, is Jesus your Savior? Yes. Why is he your Savior? What did he do? You don't have to, like, talk about your personal story, but what... Died on the cross and rose again. For what? For our sins. Yes. Okay. Who have we sinned against? If he died for our sins, who have we sinned against? God. We've also sinned against our fellow man, but ultimately we've sinned against God, right? So if justice needs to be done, and God is a God of justice and righteousness, if justice needs to be done... Who needs to make satisfaction for our sins? Who needs to make the reparations? Who can do, if our sin is against God, an infinite holy God, who needs to, who who needs to do it? But we're the ones who sinned. So we need to. But who can? Only if God has been offended against and he is infinite and holy and mighty. Is anything we're going to do going to be good enough? And we'd have to keep doing it because he's infinite. Our crimes are infinite in nature. Whoops. Wish we would have thought of that earlier because that's a big price to pay. But if only we can offer reparations or satisfaction, but only God can do it, what's the solution to that? One person 
who is both fully God and fully man. Right? So this person has to have the resources that God has to make reparations. But he also has to represent humanity to God. He has to be this in both his... Both his uh, he has to be both these things in one person to be able to, to make the satisfaction that is required of us. Now, if you're like, that's really cool. Jeff is really smart. I didn't make that argument up. It was made up by Anselm in the 12th century. He's got a book called Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man. He, he steps through this logical argument. He takes a lot longer to say it than I just did, I, and I really simplified it. But he says, if we've sinned against God, only the God-man can do, do what we need to do uh, and make the satisfaction that we, need, that, we need to, that we need to make. Okay, so if you believe that Jesus is the God-man, that if you believe he's fully human and that he's fully divine, then you are now 99% of the way to the Trinity already. Okay? Moving along to the Holy Spirit... Everything that's claimed of Christ in the New Testament in terms of salvation, in terms of sanctification, making you holy, in terms of what he does, everything that's claimed of Christ is claimed of the Holy Spirit as well. Everything that Christ can do, the Holy Spirit can do. The only thing that's different is that he's not claimed to be begotten. He's not claimed to be the only begotten. It says in John 15, that he proceeds from the Father. Okay, so the, the, the mode of sort of generation of the Spirit is different from the, the mode of generation from the, from as the, that the Son is, comes from the Father. It also says that the Holy Spirit is a person. That he has agency. Uh, he does things to people. He's, it uses the, the, the word for uh, spirit in the Greek is neuter. It's neither masculine nor feminine, but they still use a masculine pronoun to talk about this, what the spirit does in the New Testament. They don't, it doesn't say it will sanctify you. It says he will sanctify you. Okay? So the spirit spirit's not a force or some kind, sort of energy that comes from God or the sort of um, in, in sense of inspiration that God has. It, the spirit's a, a person um, with its own with his own uh, agency and uh, kind of sense of, uh, I don't want to say individuality, but he's, he's his own person within the Trinity, not, not a sort of energy force between the Father and the Son or something. Yeah. Um, free will in terms of uh, to act according to the nature of God, yeah. I think that anybody, you know, like people have problems, like, you know, say we believe in the Trinity, mm-hmm. but people who don't believe in the Trinity, but, you know, quote, believe the Bible, they have more problems, or just as many, don't they? Yeah. So it's, that, not, it's not like, they, it's not like they, okay, well, we have it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's what I'll, I'll want to get into in a little bit, that um, if you say you don't believe, if, if you say, I just believe the Bible, but I don't, you know, I don't believe this later development that the the, the Trinity of, of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, because it's you know post biblical or made by a church council and not Scripture. 
Um, that's been tried before a lot of the time, all through history, and it always results in something we call heresy. Uh, you know, if, if you figure it out on your own, oh, I, got, I understand the Trinity now, I got it. Usually that's been condemned at a church council probably hundreds of years ago. Um, so I, I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit, but yeah, you, you run into a lot more problems. Um, you know, even we're, we're not, you know, we're not a liturgical tradition-based church here, so we don't view the church councils as authoritative, but they are the best interpretation of Scripture we have in terms of the Trinity. The, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, these are where the Trinity was hammered out, and the sort of uh, the, the options that don't do justice to the fact that Jesus is our Savior were ruled out. And I'll get to that in a little bit. I want to do a couple other things first, but I've got a nice little graph. I like doing visual things. Um, but I, I want to actually do a little visual exercise. And if again, if you've been in my Sunday school class, you've maybe seen this before. But um, this is one of my favorite icons of Christ. It's, I think, the oldest icon we have in existence. It comes from, I think, the fourth century. Uh, they found it at the monastery at, um, at Mount Sinai in the desert. And it's called Christ the Pentocrator. It means, Pentocrator means ruler of everything. Um, and the, the fascinating thing about this is, um, if you'll notice, his, his face is sort of asymmetrical. So I'll, I'll, I'll do this visually for you. If you look at one side, it's sort of nice and friendly as friendly as it gets in the fourth century. Um, he's got the symbol of victory. He's making that symbol. And his face is light. He is looking sort of, I don't know if you can see it. His eye is sort of looking up, okay? Now you look at the other side, and it's darker and uh, sort of more stern and his eyes looking straight out at you. Doesn't look as happy in that one. So what I did was I, I took these two halves and I you know, flipped the other half so that you'd see uh, the double image of the first side. So here it is. here's what he looks like if you mirror those two images. He looks sort of like a hippie. And if you, if you, if you mirror image the other side, he looks like Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah, you pointed that out last time, actually, I did this. There's all sorts of, you have to go back, go back, there, there's a butterfly or something. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, I mean, and the fascinating thing is, so, okay, here's what's going on. Um, this is sort of the divine Christ right here. This is the son of this is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, who uh, who li lived before the foundation of the world. Right? This is this is the suffering servant, the man of sorrows. Um, the divine Christ is looking up at God. You know, his eye, I don't know if you can see it very well, but his eye is sort of pointed up. And then this is this is um, the 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 earthly the earthy Jesus who. Um, 
walks and struggles and suffers, uh, and he's looking straight out at you. But what's awesome is you put them together and you get one person, right? Here's, you can see all three of them together. One on the left, you get humanity and divinity in one person. The one in the middle, you get, well, like I said, you get a hippie. This kind of flower child. The one on the right is, you, you, I don't want to cross him in a dark alley. But the, the, the one on the left is, is you know, a, an integrated face. It's asymmetrical. It's sort of strange looking, but it's also somehow approachable. Yeah. Is it believed that that was the artist's intent? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it wasn't, um, you know, artistic amateurishness. This is the one icon that survived. In the 7th century, there was a big controversy, and they, the emperor and his sort of police destroyed all the icons, and they hid. This is the one they successfully hid in the monastery that the authorities couldn't find. Mm -mm. They're always anonymous. Okay, so th I, I think that's just a nice little visual illustration of um, who Christ is, who he is in his person. I heard one theology professor say, you could, you could just set this icon up in front of a class for a semester, and if they just came and looked at it every day for an hour, then they would learn as much as you would in any theology course. Okay. Um, I want to move on to Roman numeral three here. I mentioned earlier uh, the sort of the Trinity being the one of the few things that is not approachable by human reason. The other is the incarnation. Um, everything else within um, kind of the kind of Christian doctrine and the, the world of Christian doctrine um, could conceivably be approached at with, by, by means of human reason. That's not to say that everybody does, or that, uh, that, um, that everybody um, should. It just means that you can use your brain to sort of get to this. But when, when you talk about the incarnation, Christ becoming human, and when you talk about the Trinity, um, one God and three persons, uh, human reason founders, you need, you need somebody to reveal that to you. Thomas Aquinas has a great line uh, where he says, most of the truths of divine revelation you could know but by human reason alone, but it would take a long time, and that with the admixture of many errors. You know, in other words, you might be able to know everything, but you, you wouldn't actually be able to know whether you got it right or not. <laughs> um, that's where divine revelation comes in. Uh, it, sh it shapes our, shapes our human uh, reason, redeems it, and guides us to these two central truths of the Incarnation and the Trinity, who Christ is, who God is. Um, okay, so the, the, sh the shorthand for the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is that he is one being, three persons. One substance, three persons. Uh, being and substance kind of used interchangeably there, but they're all God. They are all the same substance, God. They are each their own individual persons. Um, they all participate in this one substance that is all completely them, but they all are their, uh, you know, the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. 
but they are all God, okay? Again, I'm not asking you to understand it. Your mind might break a little, but uh, th that's, the, that's the shorthand we use. And when we talk about persons, we're not talking about human persons, right? We're talking about what we know a human person to be, sort of a person with a sense of agency, a person with free will, a person with their own center of consciousness even. Um, but we're not talking about God having a body, or we're not talking about God being sort of an individual in the sort of modern Western individualistic sense we have. Um, but so you got to kind of take the things you know about a human person and then what's appropriate to that about God. It's basically a loose analogy. It's not, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Should, should the term God be considered a name or a title? The, it, it's, a, it's not a name because, you know, God is a name for absolute reality in every language. Every language has a, a, a word for God. So that's sort of the same thing we were talking about earlier with Elohim in the Old Testament. That's the name God. You know, that's just what they use. Yahweh is the personal name God gives himself. Well, if, we can, if we can embody that understanding that God is not a, almost a Christian name, uh, mm -hmm. is, yeah. is not a person's name, mm -hmm. but it is a designation of a, an entity or, or then I can better understand that within that entity are these distinct beings mm -hmm. or that, that make up what is God. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm reminded of an industry that they gave their engineers a stamp and told them, you know, you're individual engineers, but when you stamp it, this is not your individual stamp per se. This stamp carries the authority of the entire engineering department. Mm -hmm. So it was the engineering department declares and you use your stamp. Mm -hmm. um, so the individual was a part of a higher entity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The sort of the the theologian's word for that would be participation. Uh, the the son participates fully in godhood. And the spirit participates fully in Godhood, and the Father participates fully in Godhood, um, but they are all—they are all their own individual persons. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now I'm—I'm I'm giving you one being, three persons as the shorthand. Books and books have been written on that shorthand, so it's. Don't get the impression that I'm trying to sum it up for you, but this is this is as good as we can get in terms of saying who God is in sort of this philosophical language. But so what? And here, here's what I'll here's how we kind of parse this out. There's a uh, there are four words uh, on letter C there under Roman numeral three um, that. I think, get at what we're talking about. They are unity and distinction, and those are two poles, okay? And I'll show you this visually in a second. But they're unity and distinction. Um, the persons are unified. The persons are distinct from each other. Think about those sort of two poles on an axis. And then on the other one is equality and order. So they're all equal, 
but there is an order to them. There is a hierarchy. So think about that equality on one side, order on the other side on a vertical axis, okay? And getting, placing the Trinity on that axis is kind of what we want to do. So here's a, a graph we'll kind of sit on for a while. I hope it's, I hope you can read it. But um, move around a little bit. So this says order among the persons of the Godhead over here. So this is the order side, and this says equality among the persons over on this side. Here's distinction. Sorry, I, I explained it the opposite way, but you get the picture. Distinction, and then at the top is unity among the persons. So, and if, if you prioritize any one of these sort of in the wrong way, you end up with one of these kind of classic heresies on the outside. I'll explain those too. So what the Trinity does, the Trinity is not actually a definition of God. It's, a, it, it's more like, think about it in terms of a circle. And inside of this circle, these are sort of, this is sort of the bounds of our language about God that we have defined as orthodox based on Scripture. Outside of it is sort of error or, you know, heresy, to use the theological word. Inside of it is, we're not sure, but that's... that's Inside of it, that's where we want to be, okay? So with Trinitarianism in, the, Trinitarianism in the center, you get one being, three persons. You get unity and distinction. You get equality and order. Okay, so let me use some scripture to, talk, to show you what we're dealing with. So John 1, 1, A. In the beginning was the word. That's the logos. That's the Greek word. And that is Christ. The word in 114, he'll say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So if you say the word was with God, you're implying some kind of separateness, right? If the word is with God, they're together, but they're different things. Am I right? You with me? Word was with God. The very next phrase, that's, that's distinction. They're distinct. The word was with God. The very next phrase is John 1, 1, B. The word was God. So you have unity and distinction right there in John 1, 1. The word was with God and the word was God. What are we going to do with those? What are we going to do with the fact that they're distinct and they're the same. Also in John, and there's stuff like this scattered all over the New Testament, but John is the clearest about these. There's equality. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. It doesn't get much simpler than that, right? Later he says, John 14.28, the Father is greater than I. Okay? Okay? One theologian has described uh, theology as treating all of the statements in Scripture as if they are true, right? And we want to do that, and theology is just trying to maintain fidelity to all the statements in Scripture about God as if they are true. So if you have both I and the Father are one and the Father is greater than I, 
How do you reconcile those? If you have the word was God and the word was with God, how do you reconcile those? So if you emphasize unity at the top, at the expense of distinction, you get modalism. You get, there's one God, we just kind of talk about him as, as if he were three different persons. So in the Old Testament, there was the Father, and he revealed himself as the Father. In the New Testament, he revealed himself as the Son, and in the church age, he reveals himself as the Spirit. Voila, it's the Trinity, it's just one God. That's actually, that's, that's actually not right. That's modalism. That's saying God revealed himself, revealed himself in different modes at, at different times. And that that's the only difference there is. You've got unity, but you don't have the word was with God. If you say, you don't, you've done justice to the, the word was God. You haven't done justice to the word was with God, right? In the beginning. If you go all the way down to the bottom... You get distinctions, but you don't have the unity. You've got tr three gods then. If you say the word was with God and you don't do justice to the word was God, well, then you've got the word is something else besides God and full stop. Look at the other polls. This is equality and order. Over here we have order, we have subordinationism, though the Father is somehow greater than the Son and the Spirit uh, in sort of ultimate reality. Um, this, is, this is prioritizing John 14, 28. The Father is greater than I am. Oh, okay, well, then the Father is more God than the Son is somehow. Then you have Jesus is not quite God anymore. He's not quite fully God. Therefore, he can't save us anymore, right? Remember the little catechism we did? If Jesus is almost God, but not quite, then you don't have a Savior who has died for your sins who can make the satisfaction to the infinite God that you owe. You're still dead in your sins if he is not fully God. If he's an angel, if he's sort of semi-divine, if he's mostly God, but not completely, then no salvation, okay? On the other side, we have a big word. It might look like pantheism, but it's not. It's called panentheism. This is where God becomes God via the incarnation. And I don't think anybody in here is struggling with this, but you come across this a lot in academic theology, which I read for a living. So you get this a lot with sort of modern liberal theology that God is, because God is ultimate and uh, his will is unchangeable, then he was always going to become incarnate in Jesus Christ. And so he wasn't quite God until he he became incarnate in the flesh. He wasn't fully who he was. I, I heard one liberal uh, explanation of Jesus is considered divine because he acted divinely. Yeah. And then it went on to say, and we can do likewise. Right. Which sounds nice at the first 
glance, but then you say, no, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the, the fundamental distinction that Christ is something that we are not and could not could never be. And that, yeah, if, if you get that, then you get, here you get equality among the persons, but you don't have any kind of order. You, don't, you have the Father and I are one over here, but you don't have the Father is greater than I am on the other side. You've done justice to one scripture at the expense of another. So with these sort of four scriptures just from John, you can see that the Trinity is actually the best way of explaining these seemingly contradictory passages of scripture. How do I, how do I deal with the fact that the Father is greater than I am and the Father and I are one? Well, the Trinity is how we have decided to, or how we have come to believe is the best explanation for that. Um, yeah. I was just wondering, there's there's a thought that maybe works this out way out, but comes from pantheism, whether people want to think that's what they're doing or not, but it's the idea that God loved me because Christ died for me. The because? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't that come from? It gets the order wrong, right? It's it's, It's, Christ died for me because God loves me. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's doesn't it work? I mean, I could, some would say, "Well, I don't, I'm not, I don't believe that," but I still feel like God loves me because Jesus died for me. But in, in its essence, that's kind of what they're, they're saying, or, yeah. that, or that yeah. come from someplace else. Okay, so what you're talking about is how you how you come to know something. Uh, phil- philosophers call this epistemology. You don't need to remember that, but. Uh, the, 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 the idea of how, how it is we know what we know, well, I know that Jesus is my Savior. That points to who Jesus is. That points to the ultimate reality of the Father and of the Son coexisting eternally. But that doesn't mean that the things I know first caused the things that are true. The things that are true actually caused it, but I came to know it from down here, right? Does that make sense? Are you following me? It's, it, it, it's kind of... So once you sort of know this idea, then you realize, oh, it actually works backwards. God was Trinity before the world was created. And that is how this worked out. The Son became incarnate. The Father didn't become incarnate. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. But I learned to know who God is through the revelation of the Son who led me to the Father. Okay, so panentheism means God is in everything. It doesn't necessarily mean God is everything like pantheism does. But is this, is this graph helpful? Is any questions about it before I move on? Yeah? How can Jesus be both begotten and infinite? Both be begotten and infinite? Well, the, the phrase is actually eternally begotten. So and that's a good question. And theologians have, I love this about like Sunday school classes like this or like even kids Sunday school classes. I, I'm a bad kid Sunday school teacher because the kid will ask a question and I'll be like, well, you know, theologians have been wrestling with that for centuries. <laughs> but, and that, that's, that's something that, that theologians wrestle over. But they say he is eternally begotten. He is, the father is always eternally bringing about the Son in his existence. So there's a sense that the Father is sort of the source, the fountainhead is what they say, of the, the Son and the Spirit. 
He's eternally generating him. So it's not something that started at some point in time. It's something that is fundamental to the being and essence of God that he generates the son eternally. Does that, does that help? So he was always the son even before. He, he didn't become the son in the incarnation, right? He was the son long before the incarnation. Yeah. And these are what we call the relations among the persons of the Trinity. Um, and we, we say he's, he's begotten and that God is a father, and that the son is the son. But the only, you know, again, we don't mean those in human terms. We mean those in divine terms. So we only know that the son is the son because the father begets him. We only know the father is the father because he begets the son. Otherwise, we, we can't fill that content in with what we know about earthly fathers, right? You, kinda, you sort of have to purify the category in terms of who God is. Uh, and same thing with the spirit. He, the spirit proceeds from the father, and the son, depending on which version of the creed you listen to, but um, he's bringing them into existence eternally. Well, you know, even today, that even the, the, the secular non-member or whatever will will say we're all children of God. Mm-hmm. So, so even they've got a concept of God as creator and us as the created children, mm-hmm. if not earthly, a temporal offspring. Yeah, that we are still all considered. Children of God. Yeah, and us in a different way, because there was a point in time, in time past when we were not yet children of God because we didn't exist, which you can't say about the, the, the members of the Trinity. But yes, I mean, Paul says we're all God's offspring, right? Quoting a Greek poet. But yes, so, so there's a sort of an analog there. You know, it's, there's, it, it's... And if we're aware of these things and related to the struggling person or the critic, mm-hmm. they should be able to use those touchstones also mm-hmm. uh, to come to a greater understanding or at least a, an appreciation of why we are believing what we did. And it's not just all made out of convenient, but there's, there's a, you said, an analog in even, even the modern Canadian culture. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, what I like to say is that the Trinity is, it's it's not completely intelligible. Like we can't know it. We're never going to fathom the mystery of the Trinity of who God is. But it is coherent. So, based on the fact that Jesus is our Savior, all the all the facts interlock right. Uh, it. They, they fit together logically, even if, even if it's not rooted in sort of human, human logic that you can prove from our experience or from reason, right? So, so when Jesus died on the cross, God died. I mean, he was God and man, but not all of God, the God had died. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and there's a, there's a special name for the idea that the father suffered and died on the cross. It's called patripassianism, and no church father who came up with the doctrine of the Trinity was willing to say that, that the father suffered and died as well as the son. It was only the son who suffered and died. Yeah, but it was God in the flesh who was bleeding on the cross for your sins, nothing less. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, guess I have it wrong. I thought... <laughs> The human part of Christ died on the cross, 
not the God part of Christ. Well, not part, um, but holy. I realize he's holy God, holy human. I thought the holy human died, not the holy God part. So what? the way I like to uh, think about it is, First of all, what do we mean by death? We tend to mean by death the cessation of our earthly existence, right? So the human part that of Christ that was subject to corruption died on the cross. The instant death as a sort of more like a metaphysical category touched God, it wasn't that God defeated or that God was defeated by death. On contact, death was defeated because God is all-powerful, right? The devil bit off more than he could chew in trying to pull God down into the into the pit of death. Uh, that, that's where the, kind of the harrowing of hell comes from, you know, like in, in, in his contact with death, the son overcame it and, and, and defeated it for our salvation. So... <clears throat> To say that he died is to say that the the the, the son that God died, uh, in terms of the the body of our Lord and Savior, sort of being subject to the conditions of human death, is not to say that the son ceased to exist or something like that. Um, so, I you, I think you're right. Um, but it's just you're just wading into sort of dicey territory when you say, well, the son part did this and the God part did that. Like they were two different things. It was one person. He existed in one person. So you just you got to kind of keep these difficult, contradictory categories in your mind in one person. Uh, so, like I said, we'll we'll never get to the bottom of it. And but if you, if you, if you're starting to wrestle with that, that's good. If you're if you're starting to say, oh. Well, God, if Christ was fully God and fully man, and he died, and he, that was the second person of the Trinity, then how does that work? That's good. You know, you've made progress. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not failing at that point. You're doing what humans are supposed to do, which is to comprehend how your salvation was achieved by Father, Son, Holy Spirit in time and space for you. That's good. How can I believe in the Trinity, which I do? And yet I also cotton to the idea of modalism, where <laughs> yeah. the primary manifestation in the Old Testament was Yahweh, and in the New Testament, the Son's arrival. And as Christ said, when he departed, unless I go, you can't have the Spirit. Mm -hmm. yeah, it should, you know, I'm wondering, should modalism be connected by that tiny little string, or, or maybe a cloud, or... Mm -hmm. <laughs> is modalism not quite as bad as the other heresies? It's, it's part of the truth. It's, it's, it, contains, it contains a seed of truth um, that the order of God within history revealed himself progressively as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I can use it as a tool to explain Trinitarianism, but I should not make that my primary body. It is not the absolute reality of God. It does not describe fully the absolute reality of God. It, it describes it sort of in terms of human history. Um, to say that he revealed himself at that time, sort of in, in that mode, right? But that doesn't fully explain who God is to say that, well, he just was using different masks, right? He put on his father mask in the Old Testament and his son mask in the New Testament. 
So, yeah. so before Jesus, would would people have been not uh, by Trinitarian by uh, you know believe in two gods, like I mean, two persons in the, or that wasn't even necessary at that time. You know, some some. Uh, my dad mentioned Larry Hurtado, a New Testament scholar last week. He makes like an argument that the early Christians were binatarian, not like in a heretical way, but that they didn't quite know what to do with the spirit yet in terms of the Godhead, but um, they knew who Jesus was and they knew that he was God and they knew the, that he was the son of Yahweh, and, but somehow still fully God. So, so yeah, there might've been like a sort of period of binatarianism before Trinitarianism, but they sort of had to knit that sweater together at, at, once they had all the wool. And we're still confused today. I mean, you listen to prayers, and, it, and, and the prayer maker doesn't know whether they're talking, praying to God or to Jesus, or if the spirit that they're feeling is a mm -hmm. separate, sent, emanated, uh, sent from entity, or yeah. a, uh, a or the Star Wars force. I, we're still confused. Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, theologians will talk about the, the operations of the members of the Trinity or the, the mission. The Son's special mission is the salvation of humanity, but all members of the Trinity were involved, right, in, in every one of those. So you pray, you know, the, the proper sort of ordered way to talk about, to, to pray is that you pray to Jesus Christ, who by the power of the Spirit ushers you into the presence of the Father. That prayer is a Trinitarian event, but you can pray the Spirit, you know, <laughs> that's not wrong. Uh, the, the Son's still God, and if you're praying to the Spirit, you're still praying to God who joins you up with the Son. You know, it's, it's, it, all, it all works. You don't have to worry about, like, these sort of legalistic um, pedantries. There, there, there's some scripture that comes to mind. Is Almighty God a... Is that a reference to the Godhead or to the Father? Yeah, that's a good question. Theologians have been wrestling with that for centuries. <laughs> but you know, usually, usually they say if you're talking about in the in the uh, Old Testament, any kind of prayer to God is usually prayed to the to the Father. Um, we usually identify that with the Father, and then uh, sometimes there's a prayer to the Spirit. Actually, occasionally He's addressed as the, the object of prayer. But uh, one or two other things I wanted to say. Um, don't worry about the words on here, but I just, this, is, this is an icon of the Trinity. Um, of, it actually comes from uh, an icon of three angels that are sort of meant to represent the relations among the Trinity. And I just, this is another one of those you can just look at and learn a lot from. Um, but the Father is at the top there. Um, uh, sorry, the father is on the left, uh, sort of an iridescent blue-like color. Um, iridescence is sort of invisibility, you know, it's shifting and changing, you don't know, but the, the sun is at the top. Um, blue is the color of divinity, brown is the color of earthiness, um, and then the spirit is at the right, um, also has the blue for divinity, and has a green cloak for uh, growth and maturity, and... Um, See, they're all sort of, the, the Son and the Spirit are bowing to the Father, but the, the Father is bowing back to the Son, and it has this kind of perfect circular um, motion to it. 
that just that represents really well, uh, I think the what's going on in the Trinity. Um, the last thing I want to say is a, a test case, really quick, that I like to uh, talk about between a doctrine like the Trinity and a doctrine like predestination. Um, both of them are very, very difficult doctrines, and uh, even the sort of the main kind of proponent of predestination, John Calvin, he called pre- predestination the labyrinth. And he said, if you walk around in the labyrinth too long, you're going to get lost, and you shouldn't get lost in the labyrinth uh, because you know you're you're talking about a God outside of time. You're talking about His will before the foundations of the world, something that is inherently mysterious. And you go down in there, it's easy to get lost. Um, and I like to contrast that a little bit with the doctrine of the Trinity, which is also mysterious and, in a sense, too bright for us to look at. Uh, and if we look directly at it, you know, we can't, we can, and, and we won't see anything. But by it, the entire landscape of our salvation is illuminated. And we see everything much more clearly. Without that, we won't know as well who God is, who Jesus is. We won't be able to understand our salvation as well. We won't be able to understand uh, who God is, the nature of his perfect loving relationships among, among the three persons of the Trinity. Everything starts to make sense when you have the Trinity. Uh, even if it's too difficult to understand, everything else makes sense by it. So it's like the sun. You can't look directly at it, but it illuminates everything that we have uh, about who God is and what our salvation is about. So um, that's all I have, and we're out of time. Um, This is my last class for this class, so it's been fun teaching you this semester. Thank you. And uh, I've had a really good time. Thank you. I have a question. How did the very early church function without theologians? Oh, they always had theologians. Paul was a theologian. <laughs> because it seems like 300, 400 years later, or even, yeah, maybe even much later, when it really goes really deep, because the early Christians were very simple people. They, they didn't, you know, they, never, they would never have this deep of a discussion, you think, about things like this. Well, we're still wrestling over what Paul's letters meant. You know, we they're they're pretty deep, but I mean, I, th- I think I hear what you're saying. Like, until the 13th century, every every theologian was like a pastor. There was no there were no secular universities. It was like if you were gonna if you were gonna learn theology, you were you were gonna be a bishop or a priest or or something. Uh, and these were the people who were wrestling out. It's like a lot of these were wrestled out in pastoral contexts. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but they, the early Christians were persecuted. They were sort of, they were trying to establish their movement. Um, so they didn't have the luxury to sort of do this sort of detailed um, philosophical analysis. Once, once, once Christianity was legalized, they sort of had that luxury. Can I just do a quick analogy? Um, I mean, the Christianity has been accused of, of making up these things in these councils. Well, that's where this idea originated, and they, they made, this, uh, made this truth uh, now formal. And it was more like, like the Council of Nicaea, for example. It, it was as the, though they had come to a certain place. They got together, 
And the outcome was, oh, this is what the Bible's been teaching us all along. We now understand it and can articulate it a bit better. It was discovery, not creation. Yeah, if you look at, um, like, Athanasius, he was the kind of the hero of the Nicene Council, um, at least after, after it's, in its aftermath. And he, his writings are all exegesis. His, his, he's interpreting scripture, and we don't, theologians now love to talk about the philosophical categories, but he was just trying to interpret scripture faithfully. I think is is what he was doing, and you're surprised when you read that, and almost like he's going to have an altar call in a little bit or something. 